Let's pray. God, we thank you for those great truths that you are the high king of heaven and you are the ruler of all and you are our great father and you have made us true sons. God, I pray that you would um, give us a fresh wave of assurance that you have made us your own and that you're able to keep us. God, further convince us of that. God, I pray that your word today would not come in word only, but would come in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And I pray that you would do this so that uh, the faith of these people would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in your power. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you open your Bibles to Joshua 12, um, and if this is your first time with us, or one of your first times, uh, let me say first, we're glad you're here, and then also let me explain why I've asked you to open your Bibles to Joshua 12. I won't apologize to you, but I will explain to you why this is happening. Uh, Whenever our senior pastor, Dan Kirk, is unable to preach, uh, I've been preaching straight through Joshua, and next on the agenda is chapter 12. Uh, And next, to you members or regular visitors, I'll tell you that this sermon today will be a little bit different than the ones you've heard previously in Joshua, and that's because the text today is a little different than the ones that we've heard previously in Joshua. Previous chapters have been stories, narratives of battles and victories and miracles, and, and they read almost like a novel. Well, today's text will read... Uh, like a document you find in the county courthouse. (laughs) And so preaching from the Bible, uh, what is essentially a list or a catalog, should be different in some ways from preaching a a story. Uh, So what I think will serve us best is not to do what we normally do and just talk about the text a little bit at a time as we move through it, but rather uh, take the whole chapter essentially as one chunk And then with that bird's eye view, uh, draw some lessons and and make some applications from that big picture. So that's where we're going. Uh, First, I'd like to say a few words concerning the profitability of portions of the Bible like this. I want to defend the profitability because it really does, standing by itself, read like something that is very obscure and dull and, well, unprofitable. Uh, Pick up, for example, in verse 10, the king of Jerusalem, one, the king of Hebron, one, the king of Jarmuth, one, and it goes on like this. Uh, What are we supposed to do with that? How is that profitable? Is it for the church? Of course, I believe that it is, and part of the reason that I believe that it is is because the Bible claims that for itself. Even what the scriptures say about the Old Testament specifically, consider these words to the church in Rome. In Romans 15, Romans 15, 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
Paul writes to the church in Rome, a first century mix of Jews and Gentiles living not in the land of Israel, but in modern day Italy, and says, whatever is written formerly in the scriptures is intended by God to benefit you. Whatever is written in the Old Testament, including Joshua 12, is preserved by God in part to give you instruction and encouragement and endurance and hope. And so this list of 33 dead ancient kings, if God is telling the truth in Romans 15, 4, is for your hope. Now a great stumbling block uh, to seeing the profitability of this chapter is the quite obvious observation that this text is not directly about us. Uh, and I won't argue with that. In fact, I, maybe that's part of the point. Uh, the text does not in any straightforward way specifically destri- describe or address us. And, and I'll let everyone in on a secret that uh, most of you have figured out. Most of the Bible could be described that way. Some may ask, why is there so much in my Bible that does not directly address or apply to me directly? There's this great thing that God is doing in the history of the world. It's an unfolding drama of redemption. And you're not one of the main characters. (laughs) Neither am I. Praise God. And in light of that truth, we can say, of course, God is mindful of us. God cares for us more than we know. But we are not the blazing center of salvation history. If you're in Christ, you could say you are in orbit around the blazing center. But the center's not you. It's Him. Most specifically, it's the Son, Jesus, whom the Father has sent. And so while we might be tempted to think this part of Scripture is unimportant and unprofitable because it doesn't immediately apply to us, I have to ask, can we only profit from reading things in the Bible that are obviously about us or that give us marching orders directly? You know, the main purpose of the Bible, the main purpose is not to give you marching orders for you and go to do things for God. The main purpose of the scriptures is to reveal to you the glory of God for you to behold and delight in and as you gaze upon his beauty to be transformed into that same image. Jeremiah 9, God says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me. John 17, Jesus praying to the Father said, this is eternal life, that you should know God. Know God. That's the essence of eternal life. John 17, 3. So whatever we call profitable, and even what we call practical, should keep in mind that great purpose that we were made to know God. Does this text help us to know and understand God? Absolutely. So when we read Joshua 12, if you feel distant and aloof from what's written in there, embrace that. 
Embrace that. Let that obscurity work for your good to help you have a clearer view of what Christianity and all of life revolves around. Let your aloofness from this text help you to see in a little less self-centered way, in a little more God-centered way. On the other hand, to acknowledge that this text doesn't directly apply to us or isn't directly about us doesn't mean that it isn't about us in any sense. If it's not about us in any sense, how can Romans 15.4 be true, that it's for our instruction and encouragement and endurance and hope? So while it doesn't directly or immediately relate to us, it does relate to us in an indirect and immediate, not immediate, but immediate way, ultimately through Christ. Through Christ, Joshua 12 is part of our story too. Through Christ, we are no longer strangers to the covenants of promise, Ephesians 2. And because of Christ, this glorious God revealed in Joshua 12 has become our God, like we just sang, our God and Father. So look now at the contents of chapter 12 with me. Once again, I'll save comments about it for the end. Uh, To put chapter 12 in the context of the book of Joshua, remember chapter 11 ended with these great words, 11.23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. So chapter 11 concludes what has been the main storyline of the book of Joshua, the conquest. The war is basically over. The land is taken. God has given it. The kings are defeated. All that's left now is for Joshua to divvy up uh, the land and give specific allotments to each tribe of Israel. That's what most of the second half of the book is about. So chapter 12 stands something as a fulcrum in the book between the conquering of the land and the apportionment of the land. So zooming in now on specifically how this chapter breaks up, it's quite obvious it divides into two major sections, and both begin with the phrase in verse 1. In verse 7, these are the kings. First, there's two east side kings defeated by Moses, and then 31 west side kings defeated by Joshua. Are you feeling aloof yet? Verse 1 introduces the first section. Now, these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon with all the Arabah eastward, colon. So now he's about to list these kings who are defeated on the other side of Jordan, outside the land of Canaan to the east. There are only two kings to name, Sihon, king of the Amorites, is the first. And verses 2 and 3 detail the land he ruled over. Verse 2, Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Eroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is, half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the Sea of Chinnerath, eastward, and in the direction of Beth Jeshemoth, to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pishgah. Verse 4 and 5 name the other east side king, whose name, unfortunately, is Og. <clears throat> We're given the details of the land he ruled over also. Verse 4 And Og, king of Bashan, 
one of the remnant of the Rephaim, you could translate that, one of the remnant of the giants, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edri, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Salakah, and all Bashan to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Maakathites, and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sion, king of Heshbon. Verse 6 reminds us these two kings were defeated under Moses' leadership, and their land was given outside of Canaan, given as an inheritance to a couple of the tribes of Israel. Look at verse 6. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So though this land lay outside of Canaan, uh, whenever these two kings were defeated on the way to the land... The two and a half tribes got looking around and say, wow, this is a good land. It's especially good for raising livestock, actually. Could we have this as our inheritance? And the Lord, through Moses, granted that request. The excitement continues in verse 7, when the author announces he's about to now begin naming the kings defeated under Joshua's leadership. And verse 7 and 8 are are an extended preface to that list. And again, he describes the land that these kings had previously ruled over. Look at verse 7. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments. In the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negeb, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. In verse 9, the author not only begins to list these kings, he also begins to count them. Uh, This may be strangely satisfying to some of you, if you're an engineer (laughs) or if you're in elementary school, maybe. Verse 9, this is my favorite part. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Geder, one. The king of Hormah, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Adullam, one. The king of Makeda, one. The king of Bethel, one. Verse 17, if you lost us. The king of Tapua, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Aphek, one. The king of Lasharon, one. The king of Madon, one. The king of Hazar, one. The king of Shimron Meron, one. The king of Ash. Akshaf, one. The king of Taanak, one. The king of Megiddo, one. The king of Kadesh, one. The king of Jokneam in Carmel, one. The king of Dor in Naphath Dor, one. The king of Goim in Galilee, one. The king of Tirzah, one. In all, 31 kings. Uh, The list began with the first two cities that were taken in Canaan and then generally moved, like the conquest happened, from south to north. So there we have it, 31 kings defeated by Joshua in the land, two by Moses east of the Jordan, all of their realms given to Israel as a possession. What has this to do with us? What can we learn from this? So in addition to pulling our focus away from ourselves and up to God and and to others who belong to the people of God, I've listed eight, and we could list more. 
Now, the lessons we take away from this chapter should correspond to the purpose for it being written. So what valuable purpose does this chapter serve in the broader message of Joshua? Now, that's not necessarily apparent at first glance, because not only is this information presented to us in a rather tedious and mundane manner, the majority of it is also repeat information. We knew almost all of this already. The boundaries of the land, the majority of the kings had been named specifically already. So repeat information presented in an uninteresting fashion. Why? Chapter 11 ends the conquest. Chapter 13 begins the apportionment. The narrative could have read smoothly if you just take 12 out. And on top of that, remember, chapter 11 had some uh, nice little concluding statements to the conquest. 11.16, Joshua took all the land. He captured all their kings. 23, Joshua took the whole land. Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, and the land had rest from war. So that's a nice smooth landing for the conquest, isn't it? Why, why get this plane back in the air before we get, get on the, the next one? The Holy Spirit inspired this chapter. And the Holy Spirit decided that it would do ancient Israel and our souls good to stop and reflect further on all that has been accomplished so far. Lesson one, remembering God's goodness in specifics. What seems tedious and perhaps even redundant is actually meant by God to be life-giving. It took a long time to read that list, did it not? One, one, one. Do you think that's part of the point? The fact that it took a long time is a good thing. It gave the Israelite reader time to really soak in the goodness of what God has done. It's worth your time to consider and remember in detail the many, many, many good things that he has done for you. There's an old song. The melody's kind of cheesy, but the words are good. Uh, Count your blessings, name them one by one. Well, quite literally, this chapter counts God's victories in Canaan and names them one by one. There is something good for our souls that comes from doing the tedious thing and being specific and remembering God's goodness to us. You know, I think about this song that we sing. It's a good song, one, uh, 10,000 Reasons, right? And, and one of the lines of the song says something like, I can find 10,000 reasons that I should bless the Lord. And, that, and that's good. But let me propose that actually taking time to specifically consider 20 of those reasons that you have to bless the Lord might actually do your soul more good than just saying generically that you could find 10,000 reasons if you took the time to think about it. Uh, Consider these words from H.L. Ellison. He says, It would be unfair to suggest that the church is unwilling to thank God for all his many mercies, but on the whole it is unwilling to indulge in detailed and specific thanks. If we were to train ourselves to recognize God's goodness act by act and detail by detail, many of us would come to think more highly both of God and of the church. Much of our despondency 
comes from failing to see how much God has really achieved. Or about this from Dale Ralph Davis. On, these, on this chapter, he says, itemizing the Lord's goodness. That's a good phrase. Itemizing the Lord's goodness. That is always the method of biblical faith. It is as faith give thank, gives thanks in detail that faith is nurtured, encouraged, and takes on fresh heart to expect more mercies. And that's right. If we only come to the Lord, and I'll add not just in our thanksgivings, but in our confessions, in our praises, in our supplications, if we only come to Him in a broad and general, dare I say vague, manner, then we may find that the troubles of our soul are only healed in a broad and general and vague way. It's easier to be general. It's not as tedious, but it won't do the same good as... as uh, being getting into the nitty-gritties. Closely related to this first point is the second, documenting God's faithfulness. So it, it's a documentation of God's faithfulness just to recount uh, the kings that were defeated in Canaan. God promised that. But there's a special kind of documentation of God's faithfulness by pasting that list of defeated Canaanite kings to the east side kings that were defeated, Og and Sihon, because before Joshua and Israel entered the land, after they had defeated those kings, the the east side kings, God said, you see what happened to Og and Sihon? I will do the same thing to all those Canaanite kings. Deuteronomy 31 is one of those times. Verse 3 The Lord your God himself will go over the Jordan before you. It's a beautiful picture. And he will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. Verse 4, And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land. So before they started the conquest in Canaan, The Lord pointed to Og and Sihon as if to say, Look, uh, through these dangers and toils and snares, I have brought you safely by my grace. And by that same grace, I will bring you home. Even though more dangers and toils and snares lie ahead in that land. So, So to see all of these together on the same list documents God's faithfulness in a special way. And in the same way that Israel could at this time uh, add the Canaanite kings to the list of the victories God has given to them, one day, one day you will be able to add all of your current and future dangers and toils and snares to the list of what God has already brought you through. By his grace, he will bring us safely home. Lesson three, justifying God's command not to fear man. Now, that's strange language perhaps. By justifying God's command, I mean what happened in Canaan proved proved that God was giving a command that was right and good. Have you ever been in a situation where someone told you not to be afraid? And you thought, that's a really unreasonable thing for you to ask of me. Because neither you nor I Uh, really have any control over whether something painful happens to me as a result of this. 
So maybe they're not justified in saying that. Do not fear. Well, God, God proves that that he is justified in giving this command to Joshua. Do not fear any man in Canaan. He said it in Joshua 1 and Joshua 8 and Joshua 10 and Deuteronomy before they even got in the land. And hearing all 31 Canaanite kings counted out one by one makes you conclude, you know what? God was right. God was right. We didn't need to fear these men. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for me, what can any of the kings of the earth or all of them together do to me? Only that which our loving, sovereign Father in heaven allows, and even designs for our good. Jesus exemplified this faith. Do you remember when Jesus was before Pilate? And Pilate said, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Only what man has authority from above from a loving Father to us. And I would suggest that here again, even the tedious manner in which this information is presented in chapter 12 actually makes more powerful the justification of this command not to fear man. It's one thing to say, look, don't fear any man. Think about what God did to all the kings of Canaan. It's another thing to say, you need not fear man. Consider what God did to the king of Jericho, the king of Ai, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, Lachish, Elgon, Gezer, Debir, Geder, Hormah, Arad, Libna, Adullam. That's not even half of them. It lands with you uh, with more power to consider what God has done in all its glorious detail. It takes a certain kind of patience to receive that benefit, though, doesn't it? You know, patience and faith sometimes are are put in parallel in the Bible? Do you have the patience needed to have your faith strengthened by God's Word in all its glorious detail? Lesson four, reinforcing the unity of God's people. So by celebrating the victories in Canaan, together with the victories east of the Jordan, the author's giving Israel the chance to see and remember that the conquest in Canaan was part of a bigger story involving a bigger people. So having tribes with inheritances on either side of the Jordan River actually posed a threat to disunity. We see this without getting into all the details. In chapter 1, remember when they're about to cross over into Canaan, Joshua says, now, okay, you east side tribes, even though you already have your inheritance, remember that these guys are your brothers and you need to cross over with them and fight beside them and for them until they have their inheritance. After the conquest in Joshua 22, the east side tribes build this big altar, and it causes a a hubbub, and and the west side tribes say, well, hey, this, this makes us uncomfortable. Is this idolatry? Why are you building this altar? And they say, well, uh, we're building this altar so that later generations won't grow up and say, look, those tribes are separated from us. They're on the other side of the Jordan. They have no part in Israel. 
So I'm building this altar to bear witness to the fact that we belong to the same people. Joshua 12 um, works against those seeds of disunity, presenting the victories east of Jordan and west of Jordan together, reminds all of Israel, whichever side they live on, that they're part of the same people of God, part of the same plan of redemption. We can become so focused on our own daily battles and our own victories by God's grace that we forget that we're part of a bigger story of what God is doing all over the world. And we are part of a bigger people that God has purchased for himself all over the world. Don't forget that all whom Jesus has saved is a brother to you. The persecuted believer in the Middle East, the believer who's sitting in another church this morning in Fort Worth, the person in front of you and behind you, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Without using those words, Joshua 12 holds that forth for Israel. It says, remember, remember what God has done for you both. And by extension, we're encouraged to broaden our horizons similarly. Lesson five, solidifying Joshua's leadership alongside Moses. Uh, If you've been with us in previous sermons on Joshua, you know already that one of God's main purposes in the conquest was to establish Joshua as one like Moses, the legitimate successor to Moses and a worthy leader of the people of God like Moses. For example, if you remember when Israel, uh, before they crossed the Jordan River into Canaan, The Lord said in 3.7, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. For what purpose? That they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then after the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River happened, in 4.14, on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. This is clearly one of God's purposes in how he used Joshua in the conquest, and this is clearly one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit-inspired author of this book in writing chapter 12, to once again see that Joshua was used by God similarly as Moses, and God was with him just as he was with Moses. Now, for Joshua to be put in the same league as Moses, as far as the way God chose to use him, that's... A pretty big deal, actually. Uh, One way to demonstrate how significant this is for God to exalt Joshua alongside Moses is to see how, in verse 6 of this chapter, Moses is twice referred to as the servant of the Lord. Um, Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, he gave their land, so, so he repeats it. It's kind of redundant, right? If, if I had written in this sermon, um, today I will preach for Pastor Dan, our senior pastor, because Pastor Dan, our senior pastor, 
had surgery earlier this week. Katie would have cut that second one. She would have said, that's redundant. You don't need to say that. Well, this is, this is on purpose, that this repetition to identify Moses as the servant of the Lord. Uh, Thirteen times Moses is given this title in Joshua, and it's sweet at the very end of the book, which we'll get to, when we hear that Joshua dies, he, for the first time, is identified as the servant of the Lord, just like Moses. And actually, not very many people are singled out as the servant of the Lord in the Old Testament. Moses, Joshua, and David are the main ones. It seems this title is generally reserved in the Old Testament, not always, but generally for individuals that that God intends to use to to bring to his people uh, part of the blessing or inheritance, or in Moses' case, even the redemption that he promised to them. So, of course, exalting Joshua beside Moses as another servant of the Lord In one sense, that means we're supposed to look at Joshua and follow him as he follows Christ, though he didn't know it by that name, right, Um, as an example for us to imitate. But also, and perhaps more significantly, part of why God exalts Joshua and Moses and David and calls them the servant of the Lord is to teach us, is to teach us to anticipate a greater servant of the Lord. For example, in Isaiah 52, 53, the most well-known, one of the most well-known portions of the Old Testament, God says, I will send my servant. I will send another servant of the Lord, like Moses, like Joshua, especially, I think, in the context of Isaiah, like David. And this servant of the Lord will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord will lay on this servant the iniquity of us all, And out of the anguish of his soul, this righteous servant will be satisfied because he will look on those whose iniquity he took to himself and they will be counted righteous. Isaiah 53. So as Joshua is lifted up beside Moses, we anticipate a great servant who will come to take away our sins and bring us home to God, Jesus, the Son. These last three we'll move through quickly. Lesson six, establishing God as the only sovereign. We count these ancient dead kings. We find only one king left standing in the end. There's the king of kings, the living God himself. After God rescued his people out of Egypt in order to bring them into Canaan, uh, the song that Moses sings to celebrate this redemption ends with a boast that God will reign as the king. It ends saying, the Lord will reign forever and ever. God establishes himself as the only sovereign, the unrivaled king in Egypt and in the land of Canaan. No wonder he tells us, put not your trust in princes. Closely related to this point is the next one, seven. Anticipating the fall of all earthly kings and kingdoms. So God is still the only sovereign. And the fall of every king in Canaan is a microcosm for what will happen when Christ returns to put an end to all earthly kingdoms and establish one that will never end in its place, the kingdom of God. So we read Joshua 12, and it should make us long for the day when we can celebrate with the loud voices in heaven, which will say, 
The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Finally, lesson number eight, Joshua 12 teaches us to see together God's victories and his people's inheritance. So throughout this chapter, uh, in verse 1, verse 6, verses 7 and 8, the focus isn't merely on a bunch of kings who have been defeated. Simultaneously, there's a focus of the land that they previously ruled over, right? That Israel has now received as their ancient possession. So the rulers in their former realms are both mentioned because the establishment of the kingdom of God, the fall of earthly kings and kingdoms means inheritance for the people of God. The rule of God and the realm of God go together. Let me explain this further, and I'll quote a commentator. He says, The events recorded in the first part of Joshua form a prelude to a more final victory which God will win over the enemies of his cause. At that future time, God will purge the world, just like he purged the land of Canaan. God will purge the world of those who have refused to accept him as Lord and will give this purified or purged world to his people as their inheritance forever. Matthew 5.5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When you sing about the kingdoms of the world becoming the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, you can rejoice that knowing that this victory of King Jesus simultaneously will be the deliverance of your inheritance. The victory of King Jesus will secure for his people a homeland. Ultimately, this means living in resurrected bodies like his, living and working and reigning on a new earth under a new heavens with Jesus himself dwelling among us together with all of the people he has rescued by his grace. So Jesus came once to save sinners so all who trust in him because of what he did can be forgiven and changed and given a share among his people. And Jesus will come again to reign as king, unrivaled, on the earth. And all those sinners who have trusted him and bowed the knee to him as king and God, by his grace, they will reign with him forever and ever. This is our hope. And how fitting that we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus told his disciples when he instituted this supper, after telling them what it means, he said, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until... Until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. God, thank you for the hope we have that just as you defeated the kings in Canaan and gave to ancient Israel that land as a possession, that one day the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of God on earth. Thank you that our head, Jesus, will be there 
reigning, that we will get to gaze upon his beauty. And God, I pray as we take the Lord's Supper and transition to that now, that you would help us to gaze upon his beauty now and consider especially the glory of of how this king laid down his life for us to free us from our sins and purchase us for God and make us kings and priests for God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.